BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm very excited today to have with me Dr. David Feller-Kopman who is the Associate Professor here of Medicine and ENT Head and Neck Surgery. He is the Director of Bronchoscopy and Interventional Pulmonology in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. And some of the stuff they're doing with uh, interventional pulmonology is just fascinating, but I also remembered that when I was a fellow, Dr. Fellow Cotman came and gave us a talk about pleural effusions, and I thought it was so interesting and so useful, and I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about pleural effusions. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start with just really basic stuff. People out there, you know, heard about pleural effusions, I'm sure, but may have sort of some misconceptions. So let's just start at the beginning. What is a pleural effusion? So it's the accumulation of fluid between in the chest cavity. Uh, as people know, the um, pleural space is a potential space. The lung is lined by the visceral pleura. The chest wall is lined by the parietal pleura. And normally, uh, humans have about a teaspoon in each thoracic cavity. So pleural effusions occur when fluid builds up. And it's either due to uh, increased production of fluid uh, or decreased resorption or some combination of the two. Um, given the physiology of the space, um, you, our lymphatics have about a 28-fold ability to increase resorption. So for there to be, let's see, even a small effusion, four, 400 milliliters on a um, ultrasound or chest X-ray or CT, that's a significant accumulation of fluid. Something is wrong in that balance of production resorption. Interesting. Okay, so you're saying because you have the capability to ramp up the absorption by 28 times in order to even get to a small effusion, you've already got something really wrong. All right, and so you mentioned what causes them in terms of either uh, an increased production or decreased absorption. Do you have a, a schema that you use to kind of categorize different kinds of pleural effusions? Sure. So the, the most common um, is based on Light's criteria. So Richard Light, uh, who actually just spoke at our seventh annual um, updates and evaluation and management of pleural disease course, Rich, Rich Light was a house officer and pulmonary fellow here at Hopkins. And in 1972, he developed Light's criteria to separate out uh, transidates and exudates based on pleural fluid chemistries. And amazingly, over the last 45 years, Light's criteria still applies. There have been lots of other uh, chemistries looking at can we become more specific and sensitive, um, but Light's criteria seems to be the best. So an exudate is present uh, when any one of the following um, occur, either the uh, pleural fluid uh, LDH to serum LDH ratio is more than 0.6. 
the pleural fluid protein to serum protein ratio is more than 0.5, or the LDH absolute number is two-thirds the upper limit normal of your lab. And, and that's an OR rule, so any one of those uh, makes it an exudate. Now, the ex, uh, LIGHTS criteria uh, was actually used to um, get all the exudates. And because of that, uh, some transidates are misclassified as exudates. Okay. Uh, so it's really good for identifying exudates, but it will, especially in the setting, for example, of a patient who with congestive heart failure who's being diuresed, um, could potentially misclassify some of those transidates as an exudate. So the next step mm-hmm. is to look at things like either an albumin gradient, similarly that we use in ascites, um, and the number that we use in the, the plural space is 1.2. So if the serum minus, not, not a ratio, but uh, a gradient, serum minus pleural fluid albumin is greater than 1.2, that's more consistent with the transidate. And likewise, uh, the, the protein gradient of more than 3.1. And actually, the protein gradient is, is what we typically use here. Great. All right. So that helps divide exudate and transidate. And maybe just getting a little more basic, what is what does it mean for something to be a transidate or an exudate, and why is that important? Uh, great question. So um, transidates are more of a pressure problem, right? So it's a, there's there's no plural disease, there's no plural inflammation. It's generally um, an imbalance of um, hydrostatic more than oncotic pressure. So things like uh, congestive heart failure, uh, cirrhosis, nephrosis. Um, severe hypoalbuminemia. And and with all of those diseases, you're not treating the pleural space specifically, or you're not treating uh, an underlying pleural problem. Exudates, on the other hand, are related to active pleural inflammation. So we see those in patients with uh, underlying pneumonia uh, that's causing a paranemonic effusion slash empyema. Empyemas need to be treated specifically. Um, Patients with malignant pleural effusions they need specific attention to the pleural space. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So pressure versus something causing uh, fluid to move across that, some external process causing fluid to move into the pleural space versus something wrong with the pleura itself. Uh, all right. Great. So that's how we categorize them. And, you, again, you mentioned lights criteria as well as some of these other things that help, the uh, serum and pro- the serum, the albumin gradient, the protein gradient. Uh now, what about what would make you worry that someone has a pleural effusion in the ICU all the time? You know, we may see it on a chest X-ray that we got for another reason, but you know, are there things you think of if you see someone in clinic or someone's on the floor? What do you? What would make you say, you know, I wonder if they've got a pleural effusion? Right. So, you know, um, to someone who does pleural disease, you have a pleural effusion until proven otherwise, right? So, first, first of all, um, I think chest X-rays in the ICU are a horrible imaging modality. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're almost always obtained in the semi-upright position. Uh, they're really not good for looking at a, a lower lobe airspace disease versus effusion. And now with the advent of point-of-care ultrasound, um, there have been several studies showing that, um, A, if you go and just round on your patients with an ultrasound, um, effusions are extremely common in the ICU, up to 40% of patients, and intervening on those effusions can change management. Um, so I'm not a fan of X-ray necessarily. Um, I think point-of-care ultrasound is really the way to go. So um, the suspicion relates to the patient. Almost all patients um, will have 
shortness of breath, um, especially with a sizable effusion, typically more than 500 milliliters. Um, but the lungs aren't one of the uh, smart organs in terms of what they tell you, right? So the lungs can either cough or be short of breath. But, um, you know, they don't have pain fibers. The patients aren't necessarily going to come in with chest discomfort. Um, and because of that, you really need to have a low index of suspicion. So, for example, in medical school, I and lots of people were taught that empyema presents with the signs and symptoms of pneumonia, fever, cough, um, you know, productive cough, um, as well as chest pain. It actually turns out, especially in the elderly, that's not how empyema presents. Empyema typically presents with failure to thrive, anemia, low energy level. Uh, so when a plural doctor evaluates a patient and they're complaining of nonspecific things like that, it's very easy to put an ultrasound probe on and see if they have an effusion. Great. All right. So those are the things you, those symptoms are the things that one might present with. And then ultrasound being a great, uh, maybe better even uh, modality than chest x-ray to find them. Now, when you round in the ICU, do you, you do put a probe on everyone? I do. Um, and then, you know, the, the question is, do you need to intervene? Um, and unfortunately, there, you know, there, there are predictors, sonographic predictors of what the fluid's going to be. Um, you don't know what it is until you take it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so as with any procedure, we evaluate the risks and benefits. You know, is the patient you know, coagulopathic? Is it a small effusion? Well, we might want to reevaluate that patient the next day as opposed to the patient with a, a moderate size effusion um, and sepsis. You know, that, that is an effusion that needs to be tapped at the least. Absolutely. So when we talk about quantity... Uh, let's just revisit the chest x-ray for a second. So not a great modality for this, as you say, the way we do them in the ICU, it's hard to know what's down there. Is it fluid? Is it uh, um, lower lobe consolidation? But also, you know, you hear, your med students are taught, sometimes residents will hear, well, you know, it has to be greater than 400 maybe cc's in order to even show up on a chest x-ray. Is that true? Do you have a quantity in mind that you think will show up or won't if it is an effusion? So I think it depends on the quality of the x-ray. If, it, if it's an upright film, which again, very few in the ICU are, mm-hmm. um, you could identify an effusion with perhaps as little as you know 250 mLs. Um, on the semi-upright films to really know if it's an effusion or not and certainly know if it's a clinically significant effusion is much more difficult. Um, ultrasound, on the other hand, could detect as little as 5 or 10 mLs. Now, you're not going to be going after those 5 or 10 mLs, but it's a lot more sensitive. Um, it's also a lot more uh, sensitive at predicting the nature of the fluid. So you could identify um, hyperechoic effusions, which are always exudates. Hypoechoic effusions can be transidates or exudates. Um, so, again, you would still potentially need to sample those. Um, if you see... Uh, Septations, uh, that has been shown to be predictive of the need for more interventions such as chest tube drainage and or uh, thoracoscopic drainage. Um, and even when compared to the gold standard of CT, um, chest and lung ultrasound actually has uh, been shown to have outstanding uh, sensitivities, uh, specificities, and um, has the ability to look at the um, fluid, plural effusion, but also the lung in terms of consolidation, pneumonia, um, and there are even a couple of studies looking at uh, recruitment in patients with ARDS using lung ultrasound. Hmm, very cool. So would you, is there a cutoff in terms of quantity that makes something mo- uh, small, moderate, large effusion? Um, I think it depends on how good you are at, at sampling it. Yeah. Um, so for 
somebody who does a lot of pleural intervention, um, in the right setting, um, I'll get a tube in typically some, you know, as small as maybe 350, 400 milliliters. Um, clearly, the bigger, the easier they sure. are to hit. Is there any role for CT scans in someone with an effusion, or you can get the information you need with an ultrasound? You can pretty much always get the information you need from an ultrasound. Uh, the benefit, so it depends on the population, first of all. So in the ICU, then you're talking about transferring a critically ill patient, which comes with its mm-hmm. own risks. Um, in the ambulatory setting, you know, those risks aren't there. And the benefits of the CAT scan, I think, come in after you've drained the fluid. Uh, one of the pet peeves that we have is people presenting to the ED with, let's say, you know, two-thirds of their hemithorax whited out, and they send them for a CAT scan, which shows a huge effusion. They call us to drain the effusion. Then they need another CAT scan to identify the underlying lung cancer. I think it's much better to drain the effusion first, then get the CAT scan so you you could understand what's going on in the parenchyma. Um, That being said, uh, CT is very useful for identifying pleural nodules Mm -hmm. um, that you may then go on to biopsy with either ultrasound or CT guidance. Great. All right. So I'm sorry. Yeah, please. Um, CT is clearly also uh, beneficial for seeing things that you won't otherwise see with ultrasound, pulmonary embolism, um, mediastinal adenopathy, all the other pathologies. Right. Great. All right. So let's say you've now identified a patient with an effusion. And as you said, either you you ultrasound it, if it's hyperechoic, you know it's an exudate. If it's hypoechoic, it still could be. Your practice, I believe, but tell me more, is that these things should almost always be drained. But how do you decide whether to drain or often what we'll find, whether we're doing it right or not, at least in the surgical ICU, is an attempt to, uh, quote-unquote, diurese it away. Is that legitimate? What should we be doing? Yeah, so I think it depends on the underlying clinical setting. Uh, but again, if somebody's got fever, leukocytosis, and uh, hyperechoic slash septated effusion, that needs to be drained, not diuresed. If, on the other hand, a patient comes into the medical floor um, eating salty diet, not taking their Lasix, they have PND orthopnea, lower extremity edema, elevated neck veins, a right-sided effusion, sure, that could be diuresed first. But if the uh, fluid doesn't get better with medical management, then you probably want to see what it is. And you mentioned the right-sided effusion because uh, congestive heart failure is more likely to produce a right-sided effusion. Exactly. And why is that? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, Nobody knows. Interesting. Okay. So sometimes uh, it's okay if it's the right setting, maybe you try to diurese it down. But if you're worried that it's an exudate or you know it's an exudate based on your ultrasound, you're going to want to drain it. Would you ever do a thoracentesis to send the fluid and prove it's an exudate? Or do you just say, if we're going to drain it, let's put a chest tube in here? So, again, that depends on what I'm seeing clinically. Um, the incremental invasiveness between the 8 French thoracentesis uh, catheter and the small bore chest tubes that we use, which are 14 French pigtails, is, is minimal. Um, so, if my suspicion is high enough that it's going to be a paranormonic effusion slash empyema and even a hemothorax, I'll just put a tube in. If, on the other hand, um, it's a hypoechoic effusion, and I think There are other causes, um, other reasons that the patient may not have a very inflammatory effusion. I'll do a thoracentesis. Okay. And then if you are going to put in a a chest tube, do you always use the pigtails that you mentioned, or is there any role for a a larger bore hard tube? So uh, the data that's out there, um, 
even in empyema, which people think of as you know a fairly viscous fluid, uh, small bore tubes are as efficacious as large bore tubes. Um, sometimes, if somebody has a frank hemothorax post-op, I might want a larger tube in, but I would say that's probably only five percent of the time. Ninety-five uh, percent of the time, the blood drains very nicely with these tubes. I think the important thing to think about is not necessarily the size of the tube, but, but the limiting factor in these tubes is actually this, uh, the aperture of the stopcocks that are connected to mm. it. So if you do have a, a viscous fluid, it's actually important to flush the tube and the stopcock. Um, and our recommendation is generally about 10 mLs to the patient Q8 hours. Okay. And that's to prevent, if it's blood clotting in there, if it's some other viscous fluid, it gets kind of gucked up. Exactly. All right. So... We're going to most of the time be fine with a pigtail, uh, with the exception of maybe a, a large hemothorax or a frank hemothorax. Uh, we talked about ultrasound use. When you're doing, so you've identified it with the ultrasound. Now, if you're going to place that chest tube, do you guys do it under real-time ultrasound guidance, or do you just use it to identify where you want to go in? So that's, that's another great question. Um, and again, it depends on your level of skill with the ultrasound and keeping that image in your mind's eye. Uh, our current um, technique is to have the patient in the position, identify the fluid on ultrasound, and place the tube immediately after we've marked the spot. So when we're marking the spot, we're identifying the intraspace, we're identifying any potential intra, um, intracostal structures, we're identifying the uh, parietal pleura, we're identifying how deep skin to parietal pleura distances. We're identifying parietal pleura to other organ distance, be that lung, uh, heart, aorta. Um, so we're doing it real time and not having the patient move. Um, my colleagues in uh, England who have written for the British Thoracic Society recommendations, they often do it under real time guidance. The downside of that is that often requires a, a third hand. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you're going to do that, or well, let me back up. The way you do it, kind of planning it out under ultrasound, what, which probe do you use? So we'll use the uh, phased array transducer, which is a, a 5 to 3.5 megahertz uh, probe. Um, it gives excellent resolution for the thorax. It has a small footprint, so it could fit in between the ribs easily, and it has nice depth. Uh, when looking for a pneumothorax, uh, especially in a thinner patient, we'll, we'll switch to the vascular probe, which mm-hmm. is um, in the range of you know, 10 to 12 megahertz. Um, and that gives really beautiful um, uh, fidelity for looking at the findings consistent with pneumothorax. Okay. And this, the probe that you mentioned, I believe, is that the same probe we use for cardiac uh, exactly. echo? Exactly. Yeah. So, but it's different than the one you use for FAST. Right. right? So the FAST is a curvilinear linear transducer. It's got a bigger footprint. And right. the, although it could image, you're going to get more rib shadows. Absolutely. Now, uh, you bring up a really good point about critical care ultrasound. Uh, we're going back and forth between you know, the belly, the chest, and the heart. And it's very, always the very first thing that you need to do is identify where that dot indicator is. The convention of critical care echo is to have that dot in the upper right. Um, ED echo the dots on the upper left. Cardiology echo the dots on the upper right. Right. For critical care, I mean, for a thoracic ultrasound, that dot is on the upper left. So when you're going, you know, you want to identify um, structures in the chest, you got to make sure that whoever was using the ultrasound before you, you know, where, where they've left that dot. Yeah, interesting. That's definitely, I've myself had a couple of uh, wondering where, where things are and why they look backwards. All right. 
So what about if you're doing it under real-time guidance, uh, like your colleagues in England, do they also use that same probe when they're actually they, trying they to do. visualize yeah. their needle? And, and uh, when we do it under real-time guidance, for example, for a very small effusion, mm-hmm. or if we're doing um, you know, uh, image-guided biopsy of a pleural-based um, or uh, peripheral lung lesion, we'll do it under real-time guidance. Great. All right, so now you've got the fluid out, and either because you've done thoracentesis or you've just drained the fluid, what labs do you want people to send with that fluid? So um, it depends on how much fluid you get, right? Uh, sometimes you don't get enough to send everything you want, and then you've got to triage your labs. Um, the most important probably is gram stain culture. Um, that, that's in the setting of infection. Um, there are data showing that you actually have about a 20% increase in culture yield if you inoculate blood culture bottles. Not all centers do that. Um, clearly, if you're looking for a hemothorax, you want to send a spun, hemo, uh, spun hematocrit. Uh, hemothorax is defined as a pleural fluid hematocrit that's more than 50% of the peripheral crit. And then the other things really depend on you know luxury. So if I have a tube in already, let's say I placed a t- tube, I don't necessarily need to send a pleural fluid protein in LDH and pH because those may be indications to place a tube, but I already have a tube in there. Right. You're going to send cytology uh, based on your level of suspicion for malignancy. Mm-hmm. Um, pleural fluid amylase is important in uh, the, the surgical ICUs when you're thinking about maybe esophageal rupture or pancreatitis. Uh, esophageal rupture is a, a true emergency. You have over 50% mortality if it's not identified uh, and fixed immediately. Great. And is there, I'm, I'm reaching back here, but is there a lab, is it maybe ADA, something that you can send if you're worried about uh, PCP pneumonia? So if you're worried about TB, you can okay. send an ADA, adenosine deaminase. Okay. Um, and if it's um, greater than 40, uh, consistent with that. At Hopkins, that's a send-out lab now. Um, other things that you could potentially send would be a uh, N-terminal pro-BNP, um, which identifies heart failure effusions, even mm-hmm. in the setting of diuresis. Um, however, there have been studies showing outstanding correlation between pleural fluid and serum NT-proBNP, so you could just send a uh, serum NT-proBNP, and if it's more than 1,500, it's a heart failure effusion. Great. All right, so let's say now the patient uh, is doing better and uh, there's nothing draining from that tube. How do you know if it can come out? Is it just, well, nothing's draining, it can come out? Do you do some kind of clamp trial? How do you decide when to pull it? So it depends on why you put it in. If, you put, if I put a tube in for a malignant effusion, for example, and I do a talc slurry pleurodesis where I mix up some talc and saline and squirt it in through the tube, typically we re- wait uh, until the daily output is less than 150 milliliters a day. Um, controversy exists sort of like in your heart failure patients and your hepatic hydrothorax where they're just going to keep on putting fluid out when you remove the tube. Mm -hmm. Um, Many times what you could do is uh, just clamp the tube and see what happens to the patient. If they are in a new steady state because of medical management, they may not re-accumulate pleural fluid and you could get the tube out. Air is different. Um, so if I have a pneumothorax, uh, we actually do do clamping trials. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll try to get the visceral pleura opposed to the parietal pleura for a good 24 hours, make sure that there's no air leak on suction, 
Then I'll put the patient on water seal for a good four hours, repeat an x-ray. If the lung hasn't collapsed, then I'll want to do a clamp trial, typically for, also for about four hours. Um, and if the lung hasn't collapsed, we could take the tube out. Great. And so for, the, for looking for pneumothorax, you use a chest x-ray, though you certainly can use an ultrasound as well. Do you Co- use both? Correct. or? Yeah, you use both. Um, I'm not sure ultrasound medical legally has been, become the standard of mm-hmm. care for that, um, although I just put a, a chest tube down in endoscopy after um, transbronchial biopsy. Uh, within seconds, I identified the pneumothorax on ultrasound, and it took a good 10-plus minutes for the x-ray to mm-hmm. identify it. Nice. Great. Now, you mentioned putting a, a talc slurry in. Uh, what about uh, for hemothoraces? Do you ever put TPA in uh, to try to break, break up clot or even for, a, for a, uh, an empyema? Is that something else you do? Yeah, so for, um, I'll, I'll talk about um, empyema first. So empyema, there are great data that have been done already as well as some, some emerging data that's interesting. So um, for empyema, we know that lytics alone don't work. So uh, the older studies use streptokinase or urokinase, um, and for the most part, those don't work. There, there's one study looking at streptokinase where it did work. Uh, but the current standard is a combination of TPA and DNase. Um, in that New England Journal trial, uh, the drugs were given separately twice a day for three days, and the primary outcome was the size of the effusion. Uh, secondary outcomes looked at hospital length of stay and need for surgery, uh, which were also better in the TPA DNA group. Um, but the, uh, it should be noted that the primary outcome was a radiographic one. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefits is that you could potentially avoid surgery. Uh, the downside is it's about $3,000 per dose, and it's labor-intensive. It's two drugs twice a day for three days. Mm-hmm. Some people, um, and depending on the patient, I would include myself in that group, would potentially rather have um, my patient go to the OR on day one, get a, you know single double-port VATS, and be out of the hospital by day three. The median length of stay in the TPA DNA group was 12 days. Wow. So we, we don't know about cost. Um, you could potentially decrease the risk of surgery, but I'm not sure that's a valid endpoint. I think decreasing the need for a thoracotomy in empyema is a big deal. But the incremental invasiveness between a chest tube and a dual port VATS is not necessarily something that you need to avoid. There are emerging data um, that you could just irrigate the pleural space with normal saline three times a day. So uh, 250 milliliters three times a day has also shown similar results Hmm. in uh, decreasing the need for surgery. For hemothorax, it's a little complicated because you don't necessarily want to be putting a clot-busting drug in a bloody space. Um, But that's where I think think almost all patients benefit from multidisciplinary care. So we have a a plural service here at Hopkins where um, patients are discussed jointly with interventional pulmonology and thoracic surgery. Mm -hmm. So I I would really recommend joint decision-making in the complex patients. Great. So when you have a patient with an empyema, is there any attempt to see if they will, uh, with chest tube placement and drainage, resolve on their own? Or are these patients all, how do you make the decision of who's going to need some sort of intervention, whether it's the TPA DNA or whether it's uh, going to the OR? Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk with the surgeons. If it's a, a 40-year-old with a community-acquired severe pneumonia and nasty empyema, we'll talk with the surgeons. They say, yeah, there's a great surgical candidate. Let's get them in the OR and mm-hmm. they'll be done in three days. 
If it's an 87-year-old with multiple comorbidities, uh, we may try the TPA DNAs first. And is there, do all uh, empyemas need to be treated one way or the other as opposed to just drained? Um, so that's a, that's a good question. So all empyemas need to be drained. Uh, unfortunately, we don't ha- we're not able to predict the future in a lot of these patients. And the mortality associated with empyema, especially hospital-acquired empyema, is over 40%. So it's a it's a real disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to drain these patients, and then um, the the downside of drainage is when you drain. Right. So if a patient comes in um, with a community acquired pneumonia or develops a hospital acquired pneumonia, and you identify that paranormonic effusion early, odds are they're not going to need to go to the OR. You're going to be able to easily drain that space. If you delay, which is where that adage, never let the sunset on a plural effusion comes from, right. you could get loculated effusions within a matter of a day. Um, and if you delay even more, uh, the need for more aggressive intervention and mortality goes up significantly. Okay. So hence the desire to get these drained early. Now, let's say somebody gets it drained and it you take the you know it doesn't seem to be uh, reaccumulating you take the tube out and then it comes back after a few times so they can go to the OR uh, they could potentially have you know a, a slurry of DNA and, and a TPA uh, is there a setting where you guys put in kind of more permanent drains that people can sort of uh, open and close on their own yeah so one of the uh, really revolutionary uh, treatments from malignant pleural fusion has been tunneled pleural catheters or indwelling pleural catheters. Mm -hmm. And it's a a 15 and a half French uh, silicone tube that gets tunneled under the skin um, and gets taped to the side of the chest. So the whole purpose of these catheters uh, is to keep people out of the healthcare system. It gives them control on uh, draining and managing their effusion. Um, uh, 95% of patients will have significant improvements in dyspnea and quality of life. Um, the infection rate, which is something that I think the oncology community is concerned about, is actually quite low. It's in the 5% range. Uh, here at Hopkins, it's 2%. Um, and an exciting study that we're, we've just started looking at now is um, a silver nitrate-coated catheter with the hopes of um, achieving more rapid pleurodesis. So without the silver nitrate, about half of those patients in whom we put those catheters will achieve spontaneous pleurodesis. The lung will eventually come up and stick to the chest wall. If that's going to happen, it's usually in the two-month range. Um, The benefits of the silver nitrate is that uh, preliminary data has shown that that could happen as early as seven days. Mm. So it's really uh, getting the best of both worlds in terms of pleurodesis and outpatient management. Great. All right. And then... What about when we're thinking about kind of the medical patient versus the surgical patient, we've kind of addressed this a little, whether the cause of the effusion is, for example, CHF or whether it's um, uh, something like a pneumonia causing a, uh, an empyema. Are there things that happen specifically postoperatively that would be treated any differently? So it really depends on the surgery. You know, um, clearly there are sometimes big fluid shifts, um, um, in big abdominal surgeries, liver transplants, um, coagulopathies can occur post-op, um, aspiration pneumonia can occur post-op. So uh, the basic decision um, approach to the, all these patients is the same with the caveat that you have to think about what kind of surgery the patient had and what specific complications can happen from that surgery. All right. And then that leads me to contraindications. So 
What do you are there any absolute contraindications to placement of a chest tube? So the, the two absolute contraindications for any procedure is either operator inexperience or an uncooperative patient. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, everything else, I think, is fairly relative. There's uh, decent data, um, not randomized trial data, but um, decent retrospective data, um, and even prospective data that uh, coagulopathies, for example, are a non-issue for most plural procedures. The risk of hemorrhagic complications does not seem to increase even with INRs necessarily up to 7. Hmm. Um, same thing with um, antiplatelet agents like clopidogrel, uh, uremia. Those are all risk factors, um, and you need to weigh benefits versus risk on each individual patient. Um, but in the hands of a skilled operator, um, you know, for example, we're asked to put tubes in patients on LVADs who are on um, all sorts of anticoagulants, mm-hmm. and, and it's a risk-benefit individual patient decision, but those are not absolute contraindications. Okay. Now, let's say you had a patient uh, with an INR of 5 and uh, needed a chest tube. Would you want to give them a couple units of FFP first, or you do it without? So if those two units of FFP are going to end up getting the patient more volume overloaded and intubated, it may be better to put in a small bore catheter, mm-hmm. making sure that you're on the superior surface of the rib, don't cause an intercostal injury, um, and drain that fluid. You could save intubation, ICU, and hospital length of stay. Yeah. Okay. And similarly, let's say a patient is immediately post uh, or even pre-cath or they're, you know, have a new, uh, some new stents or whatever it may be, and they're on uh, dual antiplatelet therapy, or you've got another patient who's got a PE and they're on a heparin drip uh, in the hospital, obviously. Uh, again, is it a, whisk, a risk-benefit ratio? Is there a situation where you'd say, "Now just keep the heparin drip going and we'll do it? Or would you want that stopped for a few hours? Yeah, so I'd, ideally, if they could come off the anticoagulants, if they could get their FFP, rever- I mean, their INR reversed, um, we, we'd love that. Um, okay. But sometimes patients can't. Sometimes the, the risk of uh, reversal outweighs the, the benefit of just getting the catheter in there. Fantastic. All right. Is there anything else you think is important to say about pleural effusions that I haven't asked you about? Uh, the only thing I would say, uh, which is also recommended by the the BTS guidelines, um, is to ideally get your pleural disease docs involved in the care of your pleural patients. Um, uh, patients do better when they have that subspecialty care. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a real pleasure, and I hope we can do it again. Same. Thanks, Thanks a lot. All right, folks. That was Dr. David Feller-Kotman a true national, international expert in interventional pulmonology. Really so glad he came on the show. Really, I learned a ton from that, and I hope you did too. Go check out the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments. For example, you might listen to this episode and tell us what your experience with pleural effusions is. Dr. Feller Coppin certainly feels like they should be drained in many settings and pretty quickly. Is that your practice or do you tend to let them sit, try to diurese them away? Do you have an interventional pulmonary service at your hospital and how often do you get them involved? Lots of interesting stuff to think about. Remember, those comments are useful for everybody because everyone can see them and respond and we can have an ongoing conversation. You can, of course, email me as well at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you're a regular listener and you're enjoying the show, please go to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. All right. That is it for today. For Dr. Feller-Kotman and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.